0: Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes. And you can join us inside the community where there's 130 plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you inside the community. And
1: now on to our podcast. For people who want to to get in the international career, I would say don't be afraid of uh, this uh, short-term contract. What is important is that uh, you get the experience, you get uh, yourself acquainted with the different procedures and mechanisms in the specific organizations. And then, if you're good, you can stay, I would say, almost forever. So let's not, not worry about that. But it's also good for, to change because if you have a NATO experience and then you change to the EU or vice versa or to the UN, it is also a nice uh, change because then you know more and more organ- international organization. Hey, everybody. This is the Career
0: Guide Podcast. Brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. So today we are talking with Manlio Silvestri. After leaving his military career after 30 years with the rank of Brigadier General, he served at NATO headquarters within the International Civilian Staff for Operations Division for 15 years. During his military career, he served as commander of Italian Mountain Troops units up to brigade level across the Alps. His posts abroad included staff planning officer in the UK, following the British Army Command and Staff College, deputy commander of the New Zealand Brigade during interfed operations in Indonesia, and NATO liaison officer at the United Nations headquarters in New York from 2001 to 2004. Now, Dr. Silvestri is an international advisor with Capacity Building International and works with the University of California, Irvine, instructing the NATO Crisis Management and Disaster Response course. Okay. Hi, Emilio. How are you? Hi, Kyle. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So, yeah, thanks for joining us today and spending some time with us. We're on audio for this interview today, largely because you're traveling, and I think, if I understand correctly, you're, you're enjoying the Italian coastline, is that correct?
1: Well, indeed. Well, uh, I, I don't want to make you jealous, but uh, I'm enjoying the, the sunny Tuscany here. I mean, at the beach, uh, it's uh, fantastic. Uh, wonderful weather. I think it, this is the, the last sun of, uh, of the month because from ne- next week, uh, we start with a storm. So I, I think I will go back home next week. <laughs> oh, very nice.
0: What we're doing with these interviews is we're talking really about perspectives on international careers. And this is something that kind of sets apart this course from others, where we are discussing not only kind of the the challenges or procedures or the, the tactics to get hired in an organization, but also talking about what it's like to live and work abroad and live and work internationally for the various organizations. And so, I guess, why don't we just start this off? Um, maybe if you, you you could just give us an, and the listeners an introduction to your career, and because you've also had an unusual career, a unique career, I guess. I guess I should say, and um, yeah, and to uh, let us know your background.
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh, no, you're right. It's uh, quite peculiar for me because I didn't start my career as uh, with the aim to be international. Uh, I started. Uh, in the military because i wanted to be a military officer in the italian mountain troops the alpini so uh, skiing and climbing in the alps uh, was a, that was a nice period and uh, i spent about 30 years in the military and i must say i enjoyed because uh, i was commanding troops uh, and when you are in charge of uh, men and women you have to take care of them uh, you have to train them and to educate uh, to the tough environment in the mountains uh, and that was my life but then also when i was a, a young captain they sent me abroad for the first time in the, during a nato exercise in norway and uh, the context was quite nice because it was in the middle of the snow norway snow in the glacier and uh, uh, skiing uh, with, together with the uh, international, in international context, with the with the Brits, Americans, uh, Germans, and uh, all the NATO countries, and then I realized that uh, being international is quite nice. Uh, so I I told myself, wow, I should. Uh, continue being in the military, but internationally. So I always looked for jobs that could bring me as a military abroad. Uh, So I did the the, the UK Staff College. I went to New York as a NATO military officer at the United Nations. And uh, just to, you know, it's important to understand the, the rest of the world as a military. But then uh, when I was given this opportunity to be in in the US, uh, in uh, in New York, uh, being the NATO liaison officer at the United Nations, I thought, well, this is a great world and it's not just a military, it's uh, also political part. And then I said, well, why not applying for a UN or NATO job, uh, so to become a civilian, uh, not just a military? and address the political issues that uh, affect the military and affect the the real world. So uh, it was not really a change for me as I applied for NATO operations divisions. So the operations was the the base. So being a military was quite, um, I would say, easy, and uh, and this helped uh, helped me a lot. And uh, being uh, in the UN before, looking at all the U- United Nations operations around the world, and having the NATO experience was uh, was was nice and helpful. And uh, I became a NATO official at the end. So I left the military after thirty years. And I wear my civilian clothes and I started to go around with, uh, with NATO. Uh, I must say that it was a bit uh, strange at the beginning because uh, being deployed in Afghanistan or in Kosovo in civilian clothes, just jacket and tie, without my gun. Uh, in a (laughs) tough environment was a bit uh, you know strange. (laughs) I had to rely on my military colleagues to protect me (laughs) going around in Kabul, but uh, that was nice. So I spent uh, the rest of my career uh, before retirement, retirement, uh, almost 15 years in uh, NATO as a NATO official and and that was also a, a an experience that I would recommend to any people who want to to be to become international because uh, being in the UN or in NATO is something absolutely uh, fantastic, uh, fascinating Uh, but not only NATO and UN maybe OSCE as well or uh, European Union. Uh, I'm talking about those uh, great international organizations that can give you a flavor of being international. Uh, I'm not uh, diminishing the value of uh, the NGOs now because those are also working internationally. But being an official uh, international organization is something that adds value to your uh, international career. And then, uh, as you mentioned, I, I'm part of a the, of the board, a panel in the Capacity Building International. And now we are working on the NATO Crisis uh, Management and Disaster Response Corps for the University of, University of California. So those experiences is something that tell you that it's not time to retire, actually. Even if you are 60, 60 years old, I mean, there, there is a life uh, beyond the, retire, the, the official retired period. So there are memorable moments that I, I'm spending now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so one of the things that,
0: that I wanted to talk to you about when, when we agreed to, to, when you agreed to do an interview with, uh, with us, <laughs> is that you were getting into NATO at a time before they started implementing like these more restrictive kind of hiring and contractual procedures. And um, I thought maybe you could give us some insight on that. Because one of the things that we talk about in the course is, you know, that with the international communities these days, when you start out your work, we sort of advise people in the career course to say, you know, you probably want to start in the field, in the mission somewhere, and then work your way to the headquarters for a couple of reasons. One, you'll probably find more opportunities. And two, you'll get a lot more experience to bring back to the headquarters. So, there's that part. So, you could probably expand on that a bit. But then the second part, which I think is you've got some historical insight, which I think is probably pretty important, which is when you do that, when you just start your career, like now, if somebody's starting a career, they're going to encounter like this three year contract plus three years. You know, with OSCE, for example, it's one year, but you can't stay more than seven years in a mission, 10 years maximum in the organization. We had another interview with somebody who is from the EU, and it's basically like a three-year program. So, you know, but you were actually in NATO before these things came up. So maybe start with that and basically say, you know, could you explain a little bit, like, why were these changes happening in the international organizations?
1: No, actually, uh, you mentioned the, the three years contract and uh, the difficulties, but this is only NATO, I must say. Um, the issue of the contracts, okay, let's take one aspect at a time. So, first, the contracts. Uh, when I joined NATO, uh, I, actually, before I joined NATO, a few years before uh, I joined NATO, I was still in the military. The contracts in NATO were uh, three years and uh, they the human resources in NATO they tend to uh, let's uh, stop the the career of the people after 9 years why because uh, when you reach 10 years in NATO you have to uh, you, you have you reach the rights to have a pension and this is quite important of course and nations uh, didn't want to spend much money on that so they say okay 9 years that's over we give you a lump sum that's it now, Lord Robertson, uh, the NATO secretary, the UK uh, NATO Secretary General, wanted to change that. Why? Because uh, if you give a short-term contract to people, people uh, they they just join NATO, having in mind that they will not stay there, and uh, they are already looking for something else. And at the end of the day, there is no legacy, and NATO needs some legacy. They need to have people with a long-term experience. So the Lord Robertson said, okay, let's try, and this was a trial actually, to give an indefinite contract to people who want to, you know, who are good and they want to stay. And when I joined NATO, actually, I I found myself in a position to have the first three years of a kind of trial. And uh, if you are good, and uh, apparently I was, <laughs> I, I got the indefinite contract. That's why I, I stayed in NATO until uh, I retired for 15, more than 15 years. Now they, they wanted to go back to the previous uh, uh, mode, and uh, now they have three years uh, trial, then uh, possibility of staying three years. And only after six years, uh, there is a commission, there is a panel who can examine you and say, okay, uh, you are good enough, uh, and uh, they give you the indefinite contract. So the indefinite contract still exists, but it's not for everybody. I would say just for the best. Mm-hmm. Forget me if I say that, but uh, this is the reality. And, uh, and some people don't like that, of course, but uh, you need to run this risk. But this is NATO. In the UN and, the, and uh, in the OSCE, as you mentioned, even in European Union, this is different. In the UN, I remember my colleagues in the police, for instance, they have a six-month contract. And after six months, it was renewed. Now, I knew people that uh, they were there for 20 years. So a kind of temporary contract, but uh, almost indefinite. So if you're good in a job, uh, you can continue. So that's the difference indeed. But um, so this is the first aspect. Uh, So for people who want to to get in the international career, I would say don't be afraid of uh, this uh, short term contract. What is important is that uh, you get the experience, you get uh, yourself acquainted with the different procedures and mechanisms in the specific organizations. And then if you're good, you can stay, I would say, almost forever. So let's not, not to worry about that. But it's also good for to change because if you have a NATO experience and then you change to the EU or vice versa or to the UN, it is also a nice uh, change because then you know more and more international organization. I know people that uh, they were in the UN, then they joined the European Union because they were German. So they wanted to, let's say, to stay closer to home. And then now they are in NATO. So they have three international organization experience. I think this is the best uh, solution for people because uh, knowing the most of international organization, it helps a lot, especially in the coordination meetings. And we need more and more coordination nowadays with the nowadays environment. So this is the first aspect. Then uh, you ask me about the the field experience um well let's let's actually let's, let's stay on that point for a second because
0: yeah so when they have these six year boards, I'm sure they're quite competitive and because this isn't often advertised very much that there's these possibilities right so because even when I was coming up to Brussels and things like that, it was often the three plus three, and then you need to somehow change a position too right. Yeah. So yes. it was like you kind of you needed to, to be a bit more mobile throughout the headquarters somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, you need to, yeah, there is a kind of mobili- mobility now in NATO. Even, actually, I can tell you, I, I don't uh, think that I'm breaking a secret now, but uh, the A5 level, which is quite high in the uh, NATO officials' position, since uh, two years now, they decided to rotate people because the most of the a5 now in nato they have indefinite contract and uh, the opinion of uh, human resources and some nations as well that are pushing for that is that uh, indeed you create a legacy in your uh, in your position Uh, if you work on kosovo for instance for uh, 15 years of course you are a king uh, in the sorry i mentioned your surname but yeah it's uh, you you get uh, a lot of exp- exactly yeah <laughs> no <laughs> yeah you get a lot of experience and so it it's not nice to change and have a and have a new guy in your position but they believe that changing and bringing uh, let's say your kosovo experience position experience in uh, in kabu in um, in Afghanistan, or uh, bringing you to weapons of mass, mass dis- destruction, or uh, I don't know, Russia relationship, uh, that would help because you have the basically the NATO experience, which which helps a lot. So people who are in A five position now, they are rotating every let's say three years or six, it depends on the position. And so you have people who have, uh, you know, many years in Afghanistan experience, now they are working on Russia or Kosovo or uh, defense investment. So, well, you can argue that it could be good, could be, I mean, there are different opinions on that, but I would not argue if your human resources is doing well or or bad, but uh, this is what it is now. So people rotate. And you are right. After, uh, uh, the, the, the new, I'm talking now the new guys, so the three plus three year contract, After six years, they tend to give the opportunity to the good people to change uh, the the job. So if uh, someone joins NATO and works on uh, Afghanistan for six years and they say, "Okay, now we'll give you an indefinite contract. But uh, what about uh, now starting a new job uh, in defense investment or uh, procurement or human resources or media context? Uh, And why not? I mean, this is not bad at the end.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, there's no there's always value in mobility. I think that one of the the concerns that people often have is that with that kind of mobility, is there also some kind of career insecurity that goes with that, you know, because there's still in in many ways, let's just say maybe domestically, but not necessarily in in the international organizations as we know. You, you must be mobile. You must be, you know, kind of managing your own career. It's not like you're working in the United States or in Italy for a company and, you know, you kind of have a set expectation of what a career might be. It's very different when you work internationally. So I think w- the mobility is, is there, there's value in it, but it's a different type of culture than what some people may be used to. So therefore, they feel it's a bit uh, intimidating
1: yeah, and no, feel it, it,
0: somewhat it, it, insecure by it.
1: Yeah, it could be. It could be, but I can tell you, it's, um, as, you, as you said, it's, a, it's an added value. Mobility is something that can bring uh, more experience in people, and you grow with experience. So there is no doubt that uh, people who are uh, standing in, a, in a, the same job for 20 years, um, they have a limited approach to things, and uh, a- having changed the job instead, Maybe this opens their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to give you a quick test, Manlio. I just thought of this, and, and <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how sharp your recollection is. <laughs> um, so, um, walk us I, through. I, I changed really change
1: four jobs uh, in my NATO environment. Then. Um, in okay. 15 years, yeah, I changed for, uh, four times. I, I was dealing at the beginning with Afghanistan, then I dealt with Kosovo, and then uh, back to Afghanistan on another issue. And then I was uh, told, well, you, now you are the executive officer of the division, and then uh, you deal with the women, peace, and security as well at the same time. So, um, I mean, changing is, is nice, I must say. It, yeah. it Indeed, is for your mindset. It, it opens your eyes. It does, it does. It really does help. Okay, so here's
0: the question. So walk us through the A grades of NATO, and then if you can recall, how they compare to the P grades and others of like the UN.
1: Uh, they are quite similar, except that uh, in the UN, you have, uh, yes, uh, they start from P1 and they go up up P2, P3, P5. So a P5 in the UN can be compared to an A5 in, the, in NATO. So it's, I mean, it's just a a number. I mean, uh, P5 or A5 basically are kind of head of sections, head of a unit. And so you're responsible for other people. You have to judge other people. You have to employ other people. And so it's a bit of managerial responsibility. While uh, P4 and uh, A4 level and below, you are on yourself. You depend on, uh, you are a subordinate and then you have to to work on your portfolio and provide some ideas to your boss. So there is no much difference in that. Uh, In NATO, there is um, something that honestly I didn't like because I was in the military before, that uh, there are a lot of military, of course, in NATO compared to the UN. And uh, the military, uh, they, Tend to compare the military ranks to the civilian grades, which is not correct. They tend to, to say, okay, you are A5, so it's like an OF5, so like a colonel, which is wrong, because the head of a section in the in the politic, on the political side has more responsibility than a chief of branch in the military. Uh, the political part is uh, I'm not now, sorry, if I say it's more important, but the political part has, must have the control over the military part. Otherwise, we, we are not living in a democratic environment, that's for sure. Otherwise, it become a dictatorship. But for sure, the military are more quicker than the civilians lie because the civilians have to think about, they have to... To, to look at the political sensitivities in the countries, while the military, they don't think about that. They just act. And acting is something different than the thinking about. But in NATO, they, as I said, the military tends to compare and uh, the military ranks to the NATO uh, civilian uh, grades. So this is one aspect. But on, uh, coming back to your question, there is no real difference between UN and NATO on the civilian grades.
0: Okay, and so what is above the A grade?
1: The and unclassified. The unclassified, so five, you unclassified A5. A5? Yeah, no, uh, above the, okay. You have A5, a, A5 is a kind of, is a head of a section dealing with uh, you know uh, certain people uh, with a portfolio let's say the head of uh, afghanistan section is an a5 and uh, under him or her all the a4 a3 a2 people they deal with the specific issues of afghanistan while a6 is a kind of director level and uh, the a6 in uh, in the operation division for instance It's a director of operations, A6 level. And so she can deal with Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and others. So she has a a different head of section. It's a kind of hierarchical pyramid. And all the head of section can report, they have to report to the A6 level. A7 is a deputy assistant secretary general level. And then we have uh, unclassified level, which is the assistant secretary general, uh, the secretary general itself, or the deputy secretary general, which the salary is always hidden, but we know that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Oh, good. You passed the test. All right. (laughs) So your memory is still sharp. That's good. Okay. So let's talk about the the, the second component of that question there, which was – and the field experience. You know, the, the field experience and then uh-huh. kind of, you know, I, well, I think, so you kind of, you came from a different avenue to work internationally. So you kind of had a military career which generated your field experience and then you went to the UN, you were in New York, and then then over to NATO and Brussels. So you, you kind of went the route where you went and got field experience, practical experience, and then ended up in the headquarters. But as somebody that's doing kind of a civilian career path,
1: yeah, well, it, might, it, would, uh, it would look differently, yeah, yeah.
0: but I think it's still an important, important yeah. aspect.
1: No, indeed, I think it's, uh, it's quite important. Of course, if you are a civil if you apply for a civilian career from the university or post-graduating or uh, having a previous normal, I would say normal job, civilian job in the company, whatever, and if you apply internationally, there is a difference between uh, people who who just started with a field experience, so going as a, even as a volunteer or uh, applying for a kind of stage in the field, it's possible. The UN, for instance, offers a lot of uh, field experience to people who want to join them, or even NGOs. So you understand the reality in the field. Then you come to the headquarters, applying for a civilian job, international career, and in uh, in your mind, you, you have a kind of uh, field background that helps a lot. While if you start your international career as a civilian coming from scratch, you, of course, we, we take only brilliant people, <laughs> but, uh, but sometimes there is a, a kind of gap between uh, what you think the field is and what the reality is itself. So if you have the field experience before, it's much, much better. Uh, Therefore, I would suggest if people wants to get an international career in the UN or in NATO or OSCE, to start with uh, even a short period with the field experience. uh, Apply, And there are many jobs that you can apply for. Uh, they are looking for uh, international consult no, not consultant but uh, uh, hiring people to, to be just uh, admin staff in the, in a NATO mission K4 or in Afghanistan uh, working for the office of the secretary general representative uh, or uh, the USC monitors uh, etc so, Having such experience it helps a lot. Also helps a lot in your application form because when uh, the human resources starts to see that you have, for instance, a NATO online course on your background, a field experience uh, being even only six months in the field, or a field trip in Kosovo, well, uh, you have points you have really points and uh, as i said it helps you understanding better the reality on the field because when you are in the headquarters you have to propose in your uh, memos in your uh, writing the memos to the superior officers you have to write some advices political advices which has to take uh, to take into account what uh, the reality of the field is if if it is in your mind you are a better position to, to, to give a proper political advice on it.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think that's where, it, you know, working in the field or working at subordinate headquarters or whatever you want to call it, field offices, that helps you have an informed opinion. And it gives you perspective. And, and there is, it does complement your career field and, and what you want to do, if, especially if you want to work internationally for a long time. And there's, there's those of us that have been fortunate to do so, like, you know, yourself and me and others. But, you know, when you're saying that, it also reminds me it, and, you know, it could be wrong. It, it could just be a rumor. Um, but there's kind of this expression going around from my colleagues from State Department. And they're basically saying in terms of even mobility in State Department, if you want to be upwardly mobile and you want to build a career and you want to end up in D.C. or whatever, you have to go through AFPAC, which means you need to be posted to Afghanistan, Pakistan or Iraq, right? Yes. Yeah. To to be I... able to move forward in your career path. Like you, <laughs> you will have to do that at some point.
1: Uh, Indeed, this is actually, Kyle, this is a recurrent question that I had uh, during my experience in NATO as a a briefer to students coming to to visit NATO at quarter. They they always like, because (laughs) most of them, they wanted to start an international career after the studies. And uh, in the light of my experience, uh, they asked me for advice, uh, those young people, I mean, aspiring to work in international institutions, or in the diplomatic field, they, they, they asked me wh- what kind of advice I could give them. And uh, my first reaction has always been that st- the international career is in an increasingly competitive area, even nowadays. And also, in my opinion, if I may, it's, uh, international careers are of a growing importance, despite the... The current uh, trends of uh, renationalization of policy and the geopolitical confrontation that we, we experience nowadays, but in the long term, that uh, the challenges that we face uh, they will be increasingly be, I would say, global in nature, and that, this is why they will require a broad and coordinated strategies. So my advice alongside a solid a specific preparation and knowledge uh, by, by the students, by courses and online courses etc uh, and the languages of course uh, because uh, you don't need just to speak English, uh, you need some other languages. The fundam- these are fundamental operational tools. I think the best is to be a bit humble, patience and this is needed and uh, Preferably, as I said, starting to engage in the field. So learning to observe and listen. So to engage in various fields and to build uh, your professionalism and, and the strategic vision. So I would based on lived experience first. This is my advice. Well, that's good advice. (laughs) <laughs> so
0: um, let's talk about that for a bit more, because you had some interactions with students when they come to visit NATO headquarters. Uh, obviously, I think you're representing operations division or something like that. But you've also, in your time at NATO, you sat on some boards as well.
1: Is that correct? You mean panel boards? Yeah, hiring panel people? boards, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 indeed. I mean, I can tell you how we prepare the the hiring uh, boards in NATO. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, I mean, you c- you can read it uh, in uh, in the on the NATO portal. Uh, it's it's quite transparent the process. But um, just to be practical, the applicants, of course, they have the job description, which is written in uh, in the application form. So there is no doubt that uh, according to the request for the job description, you have to have a deep knowledge of what is inside. So. If the job description is about uh, dealing with Afghanistan operations, it is clear that you have to know mostly, I mean, the most of you ca- as you can about Afghanistan. So Afghanistan history, Afghanistan uh, war developments, NATO in Afghanistan, what NATO did, and uh, all the stuff that uh, relates to Afghanistan. But this is not enough. This is just the basic of the the, the job description that uh, the, you are requested to, to fill. Then you are applying for, uh, in my case, for instance, in for NATO. And therefore, you need to, to know about NATO, what is the organization, the basic, the fundamentals. And uh, I believe either you follow an online course, like we are doing in the crisis, NATO Crisis Management and Disaster Response Course for the UCI, or you just go to the web portal, the NATO web portal. You browse on it and you study and you, uh, you focus your attention on how NATO was born what is the reason, what NATO did, and what NATO is doing and has been doing recently. So all the stuff in general terms. Those are the questions that normally in the panel interview we prepare. We prepare first a a basic question about um, NATO. There are a couple of them, uh, what NATO did, uh, why NATO exists, and so on. Of course, uh, there is uh, the usual question to warm up people, like uh, why you are here. <laughs> I cannot, you know, uh, wh- uh, why you are applying for this job. But that's, uh, uh, I would say, quite common to all the interviews for every job. But then you have to focus on the NATO job description. So, what are you are you applying for? And uh, and there are uh, five six questions that uh, you are required to. Uh, in a very relaxed way to answer to the panel uh, during the interview, so it's quite simple in a sense. But um, you also need to show that uh, you are competent in what you are saying, not uh, going into panic. Let's say that's uh, the, we are looking for that for uh, people that are quite steady on their feet.
0: Yeah, I think you know, and we had a conversation with an um, in another interview with somebody who was from HR. I'm working with the EU and, and also I would spent a couple of years in NATO. And that was something that we talked about was the it is quite transparent, the process. You know, there's not really any secrets apart from what, you know, what you might get on a test or whatever, mm-hmm. if there is a test. and And you can look at the job description, like you're saying, and you can know what the themes and the topics are. So the getting to the panel is the difficult part. But getting to the panel, then you should really be prepared. You should be well-researched, well-read into some of these topics. You don't have to be a scholar, of course, but you should really practice, you know, answering questions, you know, these competency-based interview questions, like, tell me about a time when you did this, you know, and be able to articulate and answer the questions and then be able to do so, you know, concisely and, and communicate that very well because the boards are very structured, you know, <laughs> Yes, there, you're not going to get any kind of curveballs thrown at you. There's like a specific list of questions. It's the same questions for everybody, you know, and Absolutely. it's very kind of cut and dry. It's like question number one is this. What is your answer?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, indeed, and I mean, you're you're right. The the, the questions are equal to everybody. Otherwise, it's not democratic. <laughs> I mean, uh, you you must uh, you cannot uh, uh, let's say go overboard with a question. Um, I found myself different times that uh, people were answering to a question in a way that uh, I would. I was tempted to, to add the comment on that and ask, uh, expand a little bit, but uh, you are not allowed because everybody has to get the same chances. And therefore, the question is that, and you have to answer to that. And the panel leave you answer to that. Of course, if we see people uh, a bit, um, um, let's say, not in panic, but uh, not confident. Uh, we we try to to help to to make people comfortable. So there is no you know devils around the table that they want to either you ask you you answer to that or you are fired. You know <laughs> it's it's quite uh, a quiet environment. But uh, as like in the school, all the exams, uh, people are frightening a bit. <laughs> That's right. quite normal. It's quite quite human, I would say. But uh, you have to control yourself. And this is also something that the panel can note. But uh, the panel, uh, they just evaluate uh, what, uh, what is the answer. And mm-hmm. as you said the answer can be found in the job description and and, and as i said in the nato portal so in, the, in your knowledge about nato concerning the path to the to the panel now there is a new procedure and because there is also a kind of online interview before reaching the panel itself because there are a lot of applications so let's say you have 200 people applying but the panel can only see five, seven people maximum. So you have to reduce the number. So first of all, uh, the computer itself, based on your CV, and this is important, your CV must match the, uh, the, the job description. In a sense, you, you don't have to lie, of course, but you have to highlight what is your uh, real experience, your, what, your, what is your background, with the job description. So if in the job description they ask you to be that uh, the job is about uh, in charge of the historian part or historic part of Afghanistan, and you at school, let's say, studied the history of Afghanistan, you have to align that. So in a sense, the computer can grab it and say, okay, this is a guy that has this part of knowledge. And uh, so this is the, f- the first uh, screening uh, based on the software computer. After that, the managers of human resources and the manager of the division can cut a little bit more the numbers and uh, just arrive at the end at uh, five or seven people. And then you get the uh, written test. So you are called for the written test. Uh, there are three three or four questions. One is in French and the other are in English, and you reply in, in a limited amount of time, let's say one and a half hour, to all the questions. Uh, we had computer without a spelling uh, help, and that's it. And then the next day, you have the interview, the, the, the oral interview. This is the process.
0: Yeah, and well, I think what we, and it was mentioned in the course as well, is the, the issue of keywords, and so... Yeah. yeah, you're not going to copy verbatim the position description but no. <laughs> if it says some very specific item or you you need to mirror the job description but in yeah. but doing it so in such a way that it reflects your experience but using the words that are in the job description. Um and it, it's fairly easy to also just go through a job description and highlight like these action verbs, you know whether that's like managed projects or whatever the case yes. is, I can't think of a great word right now, but um, you know, it's, it's specifically written in there, finance or administer a budget or whatever the case is, those are in there. And that's where you need to take your specific experience and then frame it using the words that are in the job description. So it gets through the ATS, the applicant tracking system. And so it gets kicked out yeah. to be reviewed by a human being.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, in my in my case, for instance, when I applied, my job description uh, said that I need some uh, experience in uh, crisis management and disaster response. And uh, actually, it happened that uh, previously I did a crisis management and disaster response course at NATO school in omer while I was in the military. But this was one of the 1000 courses that I did before. So, yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes you just skip it and you don't mention it. But because of the job description, I said, no, this is important. So I would mention that I have, uh, indeed, I did the crisis management and disaster response course in Oberammergau. And I think this is, <laughs> you know, uh, triggered the, the computer to say, okay, these guys did it, this part, at least did this part. So, <laughs> It's important to to read uh, very well the job description. True.
0: Okay, so let's. We I don't think we've talked about this with um, any of the interviews yet. But how mm. how thick is your binder for your certificates and all the stuff from your career?
1: Well, having been in the military for so <laughs> many years, I think my, my file is quite big eh, because uh, uh, I, I had an experience in uh, peacetime uh, training experience, uh, being a commander of soldiers uh, across the Alps and, uh, and then in uh, countering uh, mafia uh, criminal organization in the south, the police and then, having been in the in the war in Indonesia uh, it's clear that uh, helps a lot in, uh, <laughs> but also all the courses that I did uh, in the in the military field and NATO exercises it helped to build up my file uh, but uh, you don't finish that. I mean, you don't stop when you, when you join NATO, for instance, uh, as a civilian. I continue to make courses. And so I did some other courses that uh, offered for NATO civilians like uh, uh, international skills uh, meetings or uh, thinking about internationally, coping with international differences, which is quite important because if you have to work in an international environment, you have to realize that uh, it's not like working in your country. You deal with people who have, uh, who are accustomed with the different procedures and different mentality. They have different mindset. And what is uh, pink for you can be blue for another one in another country. What is uh, uh, something uh, not sensitive for you about uh, gender because it's normal in your country could be very sensitive in another, uh, another less uh, uh, human rights, uh, civilized country that uh, is part of this organization. So you have to be you know, uh, aware that uh, working international means also uh, broadening your mindset, opening your eyes to other countries as well and uh in English for instance is a, is the l- official NATO language together with French but believe me, this is not really correct because uh, we don't speak English in NATO we speak a, a kind of international ling- English which for uh, you Kyle and, as being an, exam, an American or another Brit is completely different i mean you can understand, but sometimes you know uh, it's it's well, quite it's difficult to understand. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but understanding a Czech, a Polish, a, an Italian, French or German is uh, you, you, you have to, you know, to build your mindset as well. And uh, you have to be very open to different mindset.
0: Yeah, there's really a lot that goes into that. So there's a lot to unpack from what you said. But of course, your cultural intelligence, cultural awareness is very important your ability to communicate and, and to, to read body language and things like that, the ability to negotiate, to collaborate with others, yep. collaborate with others across the table. Because, you know, there's many times when I'm talking in an international environment and I'm looking for cues and indicators to make sure that somebody actually understands what I'm saying. Uh, and so it just, it, it takes time to build those skills. But I think if you're just starting your career, you know, like we're telling you now, you need it. Um, and it, it's only going to help you in the future. It's something that people could start working on. And to the point about the certificates, I think, you know, the reason why I brought that up is I think those in an international career, you know, we just have thick binders full of certificates and whatever, you know, courses and trainings and deployments and everything else that goes along with that throughout our career. And the takeaway from that, I think, if you're just starting your career, is you need to start now documenting your experiences. So documenting all of these things, because as you said, Manlio, which was like, you know, you took a course, however many years ago, but it applies to the job that you were submitting an application for. So having a very good, and you have to do it because it's your own career. You have to manage yourself, right? You have to manage your career. Nobody's going to document that for you. So especially like on the competency-based interviews, and is one of the things I talk about is like, look, you have to, whatever you're working on in, in a university or in another job or if, uh, with an NGO or volunteering or whatever the case is, what is it you're working on? Who are you collaborating with? Is there funding attached to it? Is it a project? You know, write these things down and just keep it because you'll have these great examples to go back on as you're filling out an application you know of all the stuff you've kind of done, and it'll help you with all these these kind of questions that'll come up. And also, like you said, it's it's an experience that you can draw upon for another application somewhere.
1: Indeed, uh, I, you, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the the course there are thousands of courses, uh, both online or on site, and you can take. And uh, some people indeed just. Uh, take them because they they just want to fill their CVs, which is uh, correct and wrong at the same time. If you do it like to fill the paper, that's wrong. But uh, when you do an online or on-site course, and you are really committed to that, and you follow it, you basically announce your knowledge you build up your experience if it 's online course, you build your experience, and then, when you apply, of course, you have to mention, as you said, you, you can record and, and, and show that you did, but that it really can help because when you are hired, you have a trial period at the beginning, and uh, in NATO, we always realized that some people had a lot of uh, courses that uh, they were just written in a CV just for for the sake of having been followed on the paper. But in reality, those people were not really very good. While other people who had um, maybe less courses but uh, they 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 had a deep knowledge of what they did they they were more intelligent than the others so it's a matter of balancing this but uh, you're right you have to record what you did and uh, to put all together to build up your experience you you need to have your backpack full of uh, those uh, basic experiences then you can grow
0: yeah definitely. And you know, I guess I'll, I'll kind of close with this is that if it's not documented, it's never happened. right? Yeah
1: Of course of course. <laughs> so
0: and, that, and that's where you know um, and, and then the last piece of advice I would give, if, especially if you're going into NATO, I mean, track the the contact details of like your supervisor, all that stuff like that, because if you're going into where you need a clearance, you know and, and things like that, and you have to go back 10 years or, or whatever, it's always painful. So just you know, yeah, just, indeed. Just keep you know your addresses. Just keep records of everything and and organize it now, so you don't have to try and figure it out later, like I had to do, and and end up trying to call everybody and say, hey, you remember this guy who used to be there? Is he still there? Because I need a phone number. You know.
1: No, indeed, Uh, you're you're, you're right. I mean, when I applied for NATO, I had uh, the the final report uh, during the war in uh, in Indonesia from my brigade commander. I was the deputy commander of the New Zealand Brigade, and uh, the guy in charge, I mean, the Brigadier General, wrote about me a final report that how how bad and good I was and I kept the records. And when I applied, I attached this record, which was very good, by the way. (laughs) And uh, I think this helped a lot instead of going back saying, can you recommend me about this and that? So if you have all the, uh, everything in your file, it helps a lot, as you said.
0: All right, Manlio, thank you very much for your time and your perspective. It's been very interesting to, to hear your thoughts. Uh, Any kind of final thoughts
1: before we wrap up? Um, No, but as I I said, uh, this is, uh, you know, the the, the international career are uh, increasingly competitive. Uh, So uh, my final advice would be uh, try to build up your experience uh, following uh, courses, uh, going to the field if you can, applying for field experience, because this is a, an essential uh, tools for your for your career. This fosters integration of different uh, jobs as well. Okay, great. Well, thanks once again, and uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, appreciate uh,
0: the insight and everything, and wish well, you the best. Thank
1: Thank you for calling me anytime. Thanks. All Cheers. Right, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.